especially as an angel, you've got to build a pathway towards becoming an API to capital and functional expertise. There's really no other way. You can't be the dumb money in anymore because there's no room for that. Hey, welcome everyone. I'm JJ. And I'm Austin. We're the hosts of the Going VC podcast. Going VC is a professional development program that helps you take your next or first step into venture capital. And to that end, we're really excited to bring you today our conversation with Paul Singh. Paul's an angel investor, former managing director at 1776, founder of Disruption Corporation, and a former founding partner at 500 Startups. Notably, he also worked for a little company called AOL back in the day and continued his journey through tech and eventually found himself driving and flying thousands of miles across the continent to find founders to invest in. This experience has given him a variety of pretty unique viewpoints on venture. That's right. And with that said, we discussed with Paul a lot of different topics, but all centered around essentially the areas of opportunity within the venture capital industry and how to do things better and develop a more contrarian approach. For me, the things that struck me as the most important were about how to get started. Uh, we won't ruin the punchlines for you, but suffice to say that if you're an individual who can start placing small bets now, you can begin to develop your approach and perfect it even without working for a big fund. And that's a pretty big takeaway. What about you, JJ? Yeah, I think the biggest takeaway for me was how to develop a contrarian approach. It's not just learning to zig when everyone else is zagging, but finding ways to diversify your geography and actually build an entire business model in a unique way around that. And thinking about your success by actually returning capital to your LPs, not just on paper returns. There's really a lot to learn in this discussion, so let's let our listeners find out. Let's indeed. We hope you enjoy the conversation. And as always, feel free to send any feedback or questions to podcast at goingbc.com. Hey, thanks again for joining us today, Paul. To set the stage for all the listeners, could you begin maybe with just a quick, you know, 60-second, two-minute version of uh, your background and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, the, the truth of my story is that I've sort of tripped and stumbled my way forward. The two-minute version of it is, is that I'll be 40 in March. I started working in some sort of tech stuff around the time I was 18. Long story short, I started out as a lowly, I don't even think a paid employee at America Online in the late 90s. I was an intern and then I basically worked in IT and the data center and stuff like that. And that role was really pivotal for me. Going into that role, I thought tech was a fad. Half of the people in the 90s thought the internet was a fad. The other half thought it was the future. I was an idiot and young, didn't really know what either of those things were. But I got this job at AOL and it changed my life because it um, showed me that where you, where you lived didn't matter anymore. I started realizing that entrepreneurship was a path that didn't require you know, lots of money. I started selling people websites in college. It was the late 90s and back then, websites were hard. You either had a university domain name. I went to George Mason University. It was my username.gmu.edu and then it was blinking HTML and static websites. I, I had a hard line with a fixed IP in my parents' basement and an old computer that I won on a spelling bee <laughs> that served people websites. It sounds really unsexy, but the point is that I started selling people websites. This was, I think, before paid ad back then. The way you got customers was direct sales, trade shows, magazines, and I didn't have money for all that. So I used Whois. People didn't have domain name masking back then. I would basically find websites, find out who administrated them through the Whois system, find their phone number, call them. And I, this is going to sound very unsexy. thought if you make 200 calls a day, you could close 10, 20 of these people and for a college kid making four or 500 
bucks a month, 4,000 bucks a month. It was real money really fast. I did that for about six years and believe it or not, uh, build, built that business up. It was fun. Built a cash flow machine off of that. By 2004, I like had these large cages inside of data centers and stuff like that. Fast forward a little bit. From 2004, I business was still running hands-off. I started dabbling in other things. I started, believe it or not, buying gas stations and all sorts of crazy stuff. So really good experience, did that. And then fast forward to the investing career. By 2008, I started angel investing. I was on Hacker News quite often back then and met some people. It sounds so weird, but whatever. And I would start DMing them on the side. Hey, I like this post you did. What are you doing? I was able to angel invest in some very early companies alongside some other people, companies like FreshBooks. And I didn't really know what I was doing, to be honest with you. I was sort of following what other angels at the time were doing. And I'd be lying to you if I told you I had a thesis. I was just investing. I'm just telling you with the clarity of hindsight. But at the time, I was like, how do you actually do this? How do you go find these entrepreneurs? How do you like vet them. I didn't know any better. I didn't know anybody in Silicon Valley. I, I live outside of Washington, D.C. The place I grew up in is like a little small dairy town of 8,000 people. I knew of Silicon Valley, but I didn't know anybody there. I, I started going to demo days. That was the thing back then. And I remember one day running into a Dave McClurb. He was also investing in stuff. And I think at the time he was at Founders Fund. He had a really interesting model investing. in. I remember one day I was sitting in the Z gates at Dulles Airport and talking to Dave on the phone. And he started talking about this idea. He's like, hey, you know, we could build a fund that has this thesis, invest in a lot of stuff. I'm not taking any credit for it. You could tell in the early days he was connecting the dots. And long story short, the first close for 500 startups happened in July, probably 2010. And Dave, Christine, and I became the first three partners. And that was that. Fast forward a little bit. I spent the first few years at 500 Startups really learning what a VC fund was about. Up until that point, I had been investing my own money. Now, here I was with Dave and Christine. It took us forever to close $30 million. And I remember back then, people made fun of us. They were like, oh, dude, so-and-so closed a billion dollars. What are you going to do with $30 million? Like, those are That's smaller than my management fees. <laughs> we were like... We were like, what? But we also had very strong convictions, convictions without data, I should say, but we had these strong convictions. It's 2010. It doesn't take $500,000 to test an idea. I spent the next three years there full-time fundraising, investing, hiring. I think when I left the day-to-day operations, I want to say we were 50 employees. I wanted to dabble in my own stuff again. I started investing again. I started this company called uh, Dashboard, which became Disruption Corporation. Honestly, that didn't go very well for me, <laughs> but I was able to soft land it. It was acquired by a company called 1776. That The point is, I, I find myself back on the other side of the pendulum. Today, I wear two hats. One hat is my angel investing. I still take the money from my other investments that it, and I still try to do about 200 new investments every year. About two-thirds of those investments are in what I call venture-scale possibilities. About one-third of those investments are in what we call Main Street reality. We'll invest in daycares and taco trucks just as much as we'll invest in the next SaaS business. On the operator side, one of the things I've never really talked about, I don't think I've ever said this publicly, so I'll say it on your podcast. About two or three years ago, I um, got really interested in one of my portfolio companies, called the founders up and said, hey, I want to build your revenue team. I think you could grow faster and you know, have helped them go from about a million bucks in top line revenue to 
about $35 million this year and wow. 100, 120 next year. It's been interesting to be an angel and an operator now because I can take the skills I'm learning on the operating side and apply them back to our companies and help them grow. But at the same time, I can see what a lot of other companies are doing and take some of those tactics back into the business as well. Paul, so if, I think if you looked backwards at your career, it's very obvious where you are today, right? You were an angel, you were a VC, you started sort of in tech, but as you alluded to 20 plus years ago, I don't think you saw this coming. At what point were you like, I want to be in this sort of tech VC Silicon Valley space? That's an interesting question. I don't think I've ever thought about it, but let's think about it together. In hindsight, I don't think I ever made like the conscious decision to say, hey, I want to be in tech, but I always found it interesting. And, and truthfully, I didn't know what else to do. I've always been curious and my sort of curse has always been trying to understand how other businesses work. I'm that weirdo that signs up for every newsletter I can come across, <laughs> not because I really care about the content as much as I care about trying to reverse engineer how they make their money. So my inbox is a nightmare. But the, the reason I do it is like, I'm like, how does this work? Look at this call to action. Look at that copy. And I've always found it interesting. I've never been diagnosed with like ADHD, but I'm not a doctor either, but I bet I have it because my attention goes towards things that I want to learn more about. And so I love the fact that tech moved faster than most industries. That was always what drew me back in. And now one of the things I find most interesting is that we're starting to see tech hit the real world. The thesis I talk about with my wife quite a bit is, is I believe that the majority of the money to be made over the next decade is at the intersection of online and offline. And I think that's really interesting. We're finally seeing brick and mortar industries embrace tech even more quickly than they had been. Let me pause there. The core answer to your question is I never made a conscious decision, but I've always been curious about tech curious about industries that moved fast. And those things just kept my attention. I will say that the more time I spent in Silicon Valley, though, the less I wanted to be there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, I can understand that. I don't have anything against people that want to be there. I want to be really clear. People can do what they want to do. But mm -hmm. what I find really interesting about Silicon Valley is that nobody's from there. Where I live here in Virginia, People are from here, right? And if you go to New York, like nobody's from New York, they all move there. And that's kind of how I felt about Silicon Valley. I love going to Silicon Valley for vacations. I hate going there for work. Because if you ask people where they're from, they all started somewhere else. And I was always intrigued by this idea of why'd they have to come here? What if we went to them? Mm -hmm. No, that, that's great. I think it's a good opportunity to transition. You talk about on your blog, you drive and you meet people all across the country. And I'd love to get into why you do that. If I were to start a fund and Milwaukee, what challenges would I face and why should I be doing that? So I'm happy to sort of prop a question, but I would love to just hear your experience on that. There's quite a bit to unpack there. So let's talk about it from your audience's perspective. I'm guessing if you're listening to this podcast, you are intrigued with the idea of raising a fund or being an angel or maybe on the other side of that and raising money from an angel or a VC. With that in mind, you pose two things there, which is one, why do I drive and fly? To, and then the other question, what should a fund manager in Milwaukee? I think they're both interesting topics. So let's talk about the travel piece first. And if you stick with me, I'm going to try my best to connect both of these conversations together. I think they're both related. On the travel side, if you want to go and be successful at the investing side of a business, you've either got to be extremely early or have a broad spread, or you need to have lots of capital and be later stage, probably in somewhere like Silicon Valley. There is no in-between. You either need to be everywhere else with a little bit of money and you need to build a, a spread or like an index fund almost, 
or you need to raise a ton of cash, have a huge, a huge amount of dry powder and just kind of pick off the winners when they're already obvious. There is a no man's land between both of those extremes. So when I was starting, as I was learning more about how these people worked in Silicon Valley, I know they're very smart. For sure, you don't get to manage billion dollar funds without being smart. I was left with this thought, how do you fight against a fund that's got a billion dollars under management? How do you fight that? Well, the answer is you don't. You don't go head on against an elephant. So the thought was, if the Silicon Valley thesis is fundamentally, we have all the money and we're a magnet, then I have to go the other way. The thought was, if those guys are going to sit in their big offices and have their big checkbooks, I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to find the cheapest flight on United Airlines because that's a big hub here in Northern Virginia. And I'm going to go everywhere else. And I'm going to build the other side of this portfolio, a portfolio of lots of little bets. I had just read a book by Peter Sims called Little Bets. And I was like, okay, let's make a lot of little bets. That way, when they do grow, we've got a good relationship and I'll be first in line to give them more money when they want to go up you know, to, to the next round. And in the worst case, they do go and get the attention of one of these big people in Silicon Valley, then at least I'm already at the table and I have a contractual obligation with my pro rata to be able to double down on it. So 2010 to 2014, 2015, I was flying anywhere from 150 to 250,000 miles a year finding the cheapest flight every Monday and going somewhere. Obviously, I didn't have any kids back then, so it was a lot easier. Then, fast forward, by the time I got to 2015, I was like a little burnt out of road warrior in the air. Also, my daughter was born and I come to the realization that a dad can't be away 100% of the time. So the thought was, what if I just build an RV? What if I take the family? My daughter's not in school yet. She was an infant. Let's get a little RV. The point is be visible everywhere else. If you see what all the other investors are doing, you must go the other way. If you see how they're building their portfolios, you must go the other way. The, the investment business is about finding alpha. You can't just go build the same portfolio. It started out a necessity, but I also really enjoyed it. I really loved meeting people. I loved... Now let's segue over to the other part of the question, which is what should a new fund manager do in Milwaukee or here in Virginia? Let me start by saying that the biggest mistake that I think new investors make is they try to be the biggest fish in their own backyard. Let's use this example, Milwaukee person. If they're just like every other angel or VC that I meet, they will try to be the biggest in their backyard or they'll like, be, oh, I want to be like the biggest investor in the Midwest. And I get why they say that. But here's what you have to come to terms with. Returning money in venture capital is very hard. I have not been able to figure out how to generate returns and limit myself to certain geographies. It just doesn't work. Now, let me tell you what I would do. And then what I do, I keep a pretty low profile within about 100 to 200 miles of my own house. It's not that I don't want to invest here, but I would much rather invest everywhere else. If you're going to start investing, you need to be thinking nationally and internationally. Don't even think about your hometown. Think about returning money and ask yourself where returns come from. The second thing I would say is start to look at Angelist syndicates and rolling funds. So to recap, travel was a necessity. You had to be on the ground because you can't exactly trust every local angel group to tell you the right thing. But I think for the next 10 years, I would really double down on thinking about Angelist syndicates and Angelist rolling funds because they really help you scale a lot faster. You can be in a lot of different places 
without having to jump on an airplane every other day. It sounds like you could look at it one or two different ways. Like you get out there and travel and do your due diligence and sort of your discovery process and get all the information you can as many places as you can. Then you still have to come back to your own process to generate alpha. So, you know, like I'm curious, is like an angel list rolling fun? Is that sort of like a, an alpha generator or is that like, this is just a new model people need to go to, to just get any sort of return. This is just the new standard because Silicon Valley saturated and eventually everyone's going to be everywhere through technology. Does that make sense as a question? Uh, let's just be really tactical here. If somebody were to ask me for advice, which is probably a bad idea, but anyway, here's the thing. If I was starting today, the fundamental question is two things actually. Number one, what do you believe that everybody else would disagree with you on? And then number two, where do you believe returns come from? And those are rhetorical questions. Now, let's be tactical about it. I think that if somebody were listening to this right now, what I would do right now is get on AngelList. I would be the fastest follower in every deal that's closing right now. In other words, if I was starting today, right now with no brand, I would just get on AngelList, get started, and I'd try to be the last $1,000 in as many syndicates as I could be. Because the worst case scenario is that now I'm getting access to asymmetric information. I'm learning how some of these other VCs are leading these syndicates. I'm getting access to the same information they are in terms of like why they're doing the deal and stuff like that. So that helps me inform my thesis. So again, be the the last $1,000 in as many deals as you can. Then the second part of that equation is make sure you reserve capital for the follow-on. Now, a lot of investors will disagree with me on this, but I really believe my first check into a company, whether it's 10K, 30K, 200K, the first check is is buying a seat at the table. Where I'm going to make the most money then is doubling down heavy when that company goes to raise the next round. So you must allocate for the follow-on. Let's just recap the strategy real fast. If you're starting today, I recommend being the last $1,000 into as many syndicate deals as you can as long as you're willing to allocate follow-on funds. Because remember, $1,000 isn't going to buy you a big seat on that cap table. As soon as that next round happens, you've got to be able to double down heavy and write the twenty-five dollars or the $50,000 or the $100,000 check, whatever works for your thesis. And that's, at least for me, that's worked really well. And if AngelList existed 10 years ago, the way it does today, it would have saved me hundreds of thousands of miles in the air but then you wouldn't have gotten lifetime frequent flyer status, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Don't get me wrong. It was a lot of fun. And I, I don't regret any of it. But what I'm just trying to say is, this is going to sound controversial, but I'll just say it and your audience can judge for themselves. I really think that angels, like individual investors are probably the single largest threat to micro funds. To say it a different way, I think if angels start to take their their investing portfolio work a little more seriously, what you'd see is a lot of micro VCs put out of work within a matter of a year or two. That's because a lot of angels can write the same checks the micro VCs are writing. And and, and nobody really talks about that. Everybody sort of talks about VC as this untouchable thing. But truthfully, if individual angels would run their, their investing with more structure, with the structure of a micro VC, I don't want them to go get registered or anything like that with the SEC, but having to do quarterly reports to do the markups and the markdowns and uh-huh. uh, investment theses and stuff like that. I think what you would see is the, the angels would crush it 
they would absolutely crush it without paying the fees. I'm probably not doing this idea any justice, but I'm long-term bullish on the idea that angels can do a lot more than they think they can. Because on the micro VC side, this is probably going to get me in trouble. It's not that hard. Let's just think about this for a minute. In the early days of venture capital, the fundamental pitch from, from a GP to an LP was, I control the deal flow. You will let me manage your money. I will take a fee from that money and a percentage of the profits. Right, because they're the gatekeepers. Thing. That's it, the middlemen. Then micro VCs come in. As the cost to start companies goes down, the pitch for GPs changed dramatically, I would say about 10 years ago. Now, a lot of smaller funds could operate. 500 startups could not have started in the year 2000. The cost to start a company was too high. So for the first 50 years of venture capital, the fundamental pitch is, I control the deal flow and the vast majority of capital gets concentrated in a few big funds because that's what was necessary at the time. Okay. So about 10 years ago, because of a lot of things coming together at the same time, micro funds are now possible. Now, all of a sudden you went from zero funds under, let's call it a billion dollars. And you have to go do the research. But by 2014, there were 300 registered micro VCs. I'll define re- uh, micro VCs under hundred million AUM. The pitch changed. It was like, hey, the deal flows diversified and uh, smaller funds return. I'm sure you guys have probably seen some of these pitch decks from GPs back then. The graph was always the same. Money is commoditized. Deal flow is no longer proprietary. I'm an expert at this and da, da, da. here's my economics on a $50 million fund. The point is, if you can visualize this in your head with me, cost to start a company goes down. Number of VCs then goes up, right? Now you've got this curve going the other way. If you look at where we are in 2020, what's happening is the only people feeling the pressure now are the middlemen, the people that depended on those fees. If you're starting out now as an individual or an angel group, you don't really need the fees. Don't get me wrong. Do you want the fees? For sure. (laughs) Everybody (laughs) wants the fees. But the fact is the individual doesn't really need them. The operator is making their money elsewhere. The point is simply, why do they have to pay the middleman anyway? Uh I'm painting, I think, accidentally a very dark picture. But there's opportunity here. And I think for anybody listening, it has never been easier to become an investor. However, it is harder than ever to remain an investor. Mm. I'd be curious if you could unpack that for us, why that's the case. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is if you follow me on this idea that you could potentially put a thousand bucks into as many deals as you could and stuff like that, your listeners right now Mm-hmm. could be signing up for a syndicate as we listen to this. It's easy. Relatively speaking, the Got first it. fundraise for 500 startups took a year. Maybe it was nine months, but it's effectively a year. I don't know what the stats are, but even today for large funds and small funds, the average time to raise a fund is still like a year. But anybody listening to this podcast could go on AngelList, sign up, and throw a thousand bucks at a deal closing today. It, it is easier, but you can get squashed. If, if you're not careful, if you don't have a thesis, you can definitely run out of money really fast. This is going to be a crappy analogy, but let me say it and maybe it'll help make my point clear. Angel investing today, at least if you follow my belief system, which you don't have to, it's more akin to blackjack than poker. The thing about blackjack, and again, for some of your audience, you're going to like crucify me for being too <laughs> simplistic here, but hear me out. <laughs> With poker, it's hard to have a a real thesis. People are like, I have a feeling and I have a process. But generally speaking, I don't know that that's true. But blackjack, when you walk into the casino, you probably already have a thesis. I'm going to hit on 17. 
or I'm going to hit on 15. You stick to your thesis. Mm. That's the thing. And as an angel, it's kind of the same. You have to have a system. I've kind of told you my system, which is invest in X number of companies, make sure you follow on. If you don't follow on, you can't maximize the return from your winners. And if you don't do that, you're bound to run out of money eventually. Not a gambler, but I know there's the Kelly criterion, which I think is very similar to what you're saying. You double down once you have your highest conviction bets. You have some sort of plan in place, and that's when you execute it, when the odds are in your favor. That sounds a lot smarter than me. I'm like <laughs> pacing my basement here <laughs> talking to you. Oh, but... You teed it up for me. I just took it home. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I guess I would just say, for anybody listening, here's the point. You're better off having a thesis and trying something out now than spending your time trying to go get an internship at some other VC firm. Yeah, yeah, great advice. That's the thing I want people to get right now. If they take one thing away from this podcast, it is you're better off getting real world experience with your own money, even if it sucks and is painful. Yep, that makes total sense. I might not ever get invited back to this podcast. (laughs) No, no, it's good. Part of the reason we have this podcast is to uh, bring people on with different opinions. So it is all good. I wanted to go, though, a little deeper into what you just talked about with respect to the the angel uh, angel groups and micro funds. You talked about how you have this strong conviction that if angel groups could just, for lack of better words, professionalize uh, a little more, they really could eat the micro funds lunch. If that's the case, why don't you think that the angel groups have stepped up their game? I'm probably going to get yelled at after this one, but <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I'm like hunkered down in my little basement safe room. But okay, I don't know that there's any one thing, but but a couple things that we can talk about. Number one, I think ego, at least in my travels, a lot of local angel groups, particularly outside of larger cities like Vancouver, have very little competition. And with very little competition, these things turn into a pay-to-play essentially a golf club, the little rich people dinner club. Let's go make these young entrepreneurs sweat. It's kind of fun. So I would say one of the things that holds angel groups back is ego. The other is lack of competition. The third thing, this is the part I'm hesitating to say, but I'm just going to say it anyway. I think the training organizations that prey upon these angel groups, the angel capital association or whatever, don't really help. They don't really help. They're like, well, here's the process or whatever. But then you read it like, and you're like, well, how many deals did you do last year? The ACA is probably one of a few, I don't mean to single them out, but they're the ones that come to mind. But they're like, we train angel groups. You can come to our conference. You can do all this stuff. But here's the thing. When you ask them what their success rate is, they sort of cherry pick because only the best angel groups report anything. The 99% that lost all their money don't want to share anything. Sure. You know? yeah. When yeah. you talk to any <laughs> investor, hey, buddy, how's it going? They're like, oh, man, we're crushing it. You're like, cool. Are you in the money yet? I'm like, oh, well, I got to go. <laughs> <laughs> if you nice. cherry pick your deals, everybody's a genius. Right. The thing is, uh, if you talk to the individual members, they genuinely want to do better. They want to, they're not charities, but the groups themselves devolve into social clubs. You didn't really ask this, but let's come at the question from the other angle, which is what could angel groups be doing better? Well, what I tell a lot of angel groups is if you only do one thing, for every for every pitch you take from within a 250-mile radius of your home location, I encourage you to look at least two deals outside that region. Worst case scenario, you're seeing what deals look like elsewhere. Best case scenario, you're seeing stuff that could be even better than what your, your home region might have. That sounds so basic, but for anybody that's interning at an angel group, look at the number of pitches they've gotten. 
look at where they're coming from. And what you'll find is most, if not all of those pitches come in locally. But at the same time, that strategy doesn't work unless you think the next fund returning company is going to be in your backyard. And like Chicago, big, big region, it may be there. That's absolutely true. Right. But if you're back in a smaller place like Milwaukee. Yeah. Then what? What if you're in Mexico City? A lot of these angel groups are like, we're a closed network. We let our members refer deals. Well, that's that doesn't work. Again, we're talking about finding alpha here. Alpha is not found through consensus, right? By the time it's obvious to everybody, there is probably no alpha left. You <laughs> exactly. have to really think about the system, uh, the systemic things that you might be doing that are hurting your deal flow and hurting your returns. It's one of the reasons why, especially in the early days of 500, we didn't take referrals from other investors. Even now, I personally won't take referrals from other investors don't get me wrong. I'm not going to say, hey, screw off. But ultimately, what we're looking for is, is a warm introduction from somebody we've already invested in. Like we want to understand the motivations for why somebody wants us to meet them. When I say us, I mean my wife and I. But mm-hmm. in the early days of 500, it was the same thing. I don't want introductions from other investors because I'm like, if the deal was so good, why didn't you take the whole round or take the whole allocation? Something's weird there. Anyway, trying to tie it back to your angel group, a lot of the the issues they face are systemic. They depend on their own members for deal flow. I don't know that that's very smart. This may not sound very inclusive, but we're talking about generating returns here. That's that's the scope of this conversation. And so ultimately, you got to ask yourself, where do returns come from? My thesis personally is the default state of every company is failure. And the only people that can turn it around are the founders. That's part one of the thesis. So when I think about it that way, I only want to hear from the founders. It's the founder I'm investing in. And if the founder has to have some third party find me, then we got a problem. (laughs) Secondly, I'm betting on not only the founder's ability to execute, I'm also betting on their ability to raise more money. And if they need to have these third parties do the work, we're in trouble. I don't know about you guys, but I've only ever had two companies in my portfolio raise one round and be successful. (laughs) We're talking thousands of term sheets. So (laughs) you're betting on the founder's ability to raise money. So that's part of my thesis. If they're depending on other people to raise money for them, I don't know that they're a good fit for me. While you're thinking about that, let me just say one other thing. I want to kind of walk back what I said about interns. I don't want to intern shame anybody or anything like that. I, I get it. A lot of people want to get careers in venture capital. Here's what I would say. I still think that investing directly on your own is the single best way to to learn this business. This is the best way I can describe to somebody. Let's say you've got the last thousand bucks in your pocket right now. Mm -hmm. And your choices are save that thousand and put it into a Vanguard target date fund or bet on this startup that could either be $0 in six months or $5 million in 10 years, but you won't know for 10 years. Mm -hmm. How do you make that bet? My argument simply is, is that given that the cost to invest is so low, why wouldn't you place the bet yourself? That doesn't necessarily mean that internships and associate programs at VC firms are bad. I think you're going to learn how to talk. You're going to learn how to uh, network with founders and other investors. You're going to learn how the reporting is done. Those are very valuable skills. Mm-hmm. But I cannot overstate the importance of actually going and making the decision yourself because... of the challenge, in my opinion, of investing is being able to actually absorb that weight of that decision Mm -hmm. and and make the bet. And and no internship is going to give you that. There's still value. I want to be clear. There's still value in the soft skills and stuff like that. But if you really 
truly are in this to be in a venture career, you've got to learn how to make the bet uh, and make the call. Yeah, that makes total sense. It actually reminds me of a conversation I had back last December with a friend who'd recently left a role at the fund. And it's actually one of the things she was talking about that was, in her opinion, fairly unique, was that she did get to get close to that decision-making role. And it really gave her deep empathy and understanding for what it's like to be in that position versus more you know, of a junior level position. Yep, 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 yep. Obviously, every guest you have on here is going to have their own thesis. If your audience doesn't remember anything else, the point is that careers and venture portfolios are kind of the same in the sense that you have to decide on what your thesis is going to be and then you execute against it. You stick to the plan for as long as possible until you've got more data to then you know, determine whether the plan has to change. But you can't flail too much. I really believe, and maybe this is just the old guy talking, but I think one of the uh, fundamental things that has changed over the last 20 years is that for most people listening here, in all of our parents' generation, success, whether you define it as money, power, freedom, whatever, was sort of a function of the number of gray hairs you have on your head. My parents, for example, they worked one job through the arc of their career and then got a pension. That's just kind of how it is for that generation. But I bet for most people listening to this podcast, success for us is going to be a function of the number of things you try. You can apply that thesis to the number of bets you take with this $1,000 syndicate idea. Yeah, I just could be for the developers listening here. It's the number of side projects you create. Sort of you for the interns, it might be the detail. number of deals you look at. But the point is, the success is really going to be a function of the number of things you try. And I wish more people would embrace that. Everybody gets so hung up on, is this the right or the wrong thing to do? Da, da, da. Yeah, it makes sense. Austin, want to tag in here? Any more questions on your side? Yeah, I just... I want to ask about results junkies and how that got started and sort of what you're up to today if you want to fill us in more a little more detail. Results junkies it's simply the LLC. Long story short, there's no no fancy story behind it. When I first started angel investing, I guess now 12 years ago, actually 12 years ago from this month, October of 2008, nice. when I started it, my lawyer at the time was like, hey, you should probably put these under an LLC, uh, a limited liability company here in the US, as opposed to just writing oh, wow. personally. And Results Junkies was the least worst name I could come up with very quickly. It was never designed to be public or anything like that. It kind of stayed in the background until I got the RV. And then I was like, what should I put on there? I guess we should put the Results Junkies logo on it. All the investments I do... It all comes out of results junkies. I'm the sole owner of it, but practically speaking, anybody that we invest in is always dealing with either me or my wife, Dana. And that's what it is. And I kind of alluded to this earlier. I wear two hats. One is I run results junkies. We try to invest in about 200 companies a year. The other hat I wear is uh, we have a portfolio company actually not far from Chicago called The Bump Boxes. It's in Peoria, Illinois. I get out there every week uh, and I have been for almost three years now. I invested in them very early, then finally sent their founders an email. Hey, I like you guys. I like the space. I think you can grow this a lot faster. I tell you what, I'm just going to do it. I don't know if they liked the idea or if they were just scared to say no to an investor. But uh, anyway, I'm the chief revenue officer there. Help them grow it from about a million bucks a year to we'll end this year, 2020, at about 35 million run rate. And I think it will be at about 100, 110 by end of next year. So I'm an operator and an angel. On the angel investing side, it's results junkies. On the operator side, it's bump boxes. And uh, yeah, it's a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. I also think on the investor side, people talk about value add, right? Like what does value add mean? I, I said to you guys earlier that I believe that the default state of every company is failure and the founding team is the only way to turn it around. When I think about value add, I think the best thing investors can provide, the goal of an investor is to become an API to venture capital and functional expertise 
if you want to be a successful investor, and I'll define success as like actual in the black, cash on cash, then I think you must build a path towards becoming an API to money and functional expertise. You know, I like being busy. I like being useful. I like all those things. But at its core, for the founders that we invest in, I can tell them like strategies that work for us and work for a lot of the other portfolio companies. That's a functional expertise that I don't know that anybody else can really provide unless they really go learn this stuff. And on the venture side, we can provide the dollars. Maybe that's also something like a nugget worth repeating. I think to be a successful investor in this day and age, especially as an angel, you've got to build a pathway towards becoming an API to capital and functional expertise. There's really no other way. You can't be the dumb money in anymore because there's no room for that. Nice. I love it. That's definitely a highlighted quote on the blog when we get this episode up. Changing gears a little bit and not to continue to rag on geography here, but there's a theory that I've seen a lot. Urban Studies professor Richard Florida, I'm pretty sure is one of the people that's talked about this. And it basically goes that, you know, innovative companies are concentrating in the top five cities. And there's a whole bunch of reasons. You've got network effects, sort of cross-pollination that goes on. COVID-19 and everyone working on Zoom has definitely thrown that for a loop here. That aside is uh, at least one theory. I'm guessing you disagree with that a little bit. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been driving around to uh, 150 cities across North America. was just wondering if you could uh, riff a little on that. I would love to hear your thoughts on what you think about the power and you know importance of geography. I think I know where you're going with this. I'm not going to dispute Richard Florida's observation that the guy knows what he's talking about, done all the research. So let's just agree that, you know, his research is good. But let's approach this from the venture angle, which is, you know, the top companies, they all congregate to the top five cities or whatever the research says. I'm sure that's true. But through the venture lens, what does success really mean? If you're Andreessen Horowitz, and I don't mean to throw them under the bus, but let's just use them as an example since everybody knows them. If you're an Andreessen Horowitz and you're sitting on a billion dollars, the definition of successful company is probably multi-billion dollar market cap. For investors, success is really fund returning companies. That's kind of what success means. So for the people listening here, I'm not managing a fund. And even if I was, the largest fund I ever managed was 50 mil. The point is when you go to that level, fund returning companies only $250 million dollars. It's a lot different. And so the possibility of finding those companies in lots of different places skyrockets. If your definition of success is unicorns and decacorns, then for sure stick to the top five cities because the probability of them being anywhere else is probably pretty low. But if your definition of success is uh, something different, then the world opens up quite a bit. Gotcha. That makes sense. It's almost like talent is evenly distributed. You know, great founders can be found anywhere. When you do get a little further down the line, into those, you know, like you said, unicorns, decacorns, there's advantages to clustering. But before that, it really could be anywhere. Absolutely. If somebody on this podcast was raising a $5 million fund, you can build your, your thesis however you want. If you believe the data coming out of like the census and the small business administration, what you'll find is most M&A activity, which is the majority of where investors make their money, most M&A, if you plot it out on a graph, look curve. And the edges of the bell curve are between 20 and $100 million. What that really means is most exits in the United States are between 20 and $100 million. When you think about it that way, that $5 million fund manager now like, has a much higher, statistically higher chance of making a return on that fund because that's right there in the sweet spot. The vast majority of exits are going to be 
uh, 20 mil or higher, 4x larger than the fund. I'm not saying it's easy. You still got to go find the companies, but the data supports the exits are there. You're not waiting on like five IPOs a year. You're waiting on like hundreds, if not thousands of exits that happen every year. So that's something that people should be thinking about. I think one of the biggest challenges in venture today is very few people have longevity in their career. And, and I get why. It's hard. Unless you're, unless you're going to be in a role that gives you carry, you're not really incentivized to stay with the firm very long. Most GPs that are on firms' websites are not actually GPs, right? It's a title that just gets thrown around. And inevitably, they spend enough time at the mothership to get some wins under their belt, and then they go start some other firm. They wouldn't do that if they were already in the black. The reason they're doing that is probably they don't get access to the real money. The point is, is I wish there was a way to keep people in the business a lot longer to stick to it, but that's, that's above my pay grade and your pay grade. This is why I'm so bullish on individuals making their own bets. For individuals to go make that $1,000 bet or that $5,000 bet, like, yeah, it's risky, but if you're in this for the money in the long term, this is where it's at. I am just so bullish on like the idea that individuals should should go take the bet. They should learn how to make the bet themselves. So that makes sense. My biggest takeaway for the audience is, and you guys are probably so sick of me saying this, but like I just can't overstate the importance of learning how to make the bet. And if you can find a role that allows you to do that then that's amazing. Stick with that role, learn how to make the bets, learn how to, how to create the portfolio. That's amazing. For the rest of you though, the reality is that the things you're going to learn at the internship you got or the job you got or whatever is mostly going to be the soft skills. And that's really great. Soft skills, the reporting, the fund management side, that's really great. But don't underestimate the importance of learning how to make the bet. In the worst case, it's like your street MBA, if you will. You're making these bets and you're actually like learning what it feels like to make that bet. And in the best case, you're making a ton of money on the back end of this thing. I'm bullish on new money managers. I'm bullish on new people that want to join the industry. If I can help in any way, I try to be pretty accessible. Email is the best way to reach me. It's paul at resultsjunkies.com. And if you're listening to this, the best way to kind of cut through the noise is put the podcast name in the subject line and I'll put a, a, a Gmail filter on that. And hopefully it'll, it'll bubble right up. Well, that's a wrap on our conversation with Paul. Remember, if you reach out to him to add the subject line, the Going VC podcast, to help it bubble up through his super noisy inbox. On our end, you can also always reach us at podcast at goingvc.com with any feedback or guest suggestions. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. Mm-hmm.